Chapters 9 through 11 of The Devil's Pool. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Devil's Pool by Georges Sand. Translated by George B. Ives. Chapter 9 The Evening Prayer. Petit Pierre had sat up, and was looking all about with a thoughtful expression. "'Ah, the rascal never does anything else when he hears anybody eating,' said Germain. "'A cannon-shot wouldn't wake him, but move your jaws in his neighbourhood, and he opens his eyes at once.' "'You must have been like that at his age,' said little Marie, with a mischievous smile. "'Well, my petit Pierre, are you looking for the top of your cradle? It's made of green leaves to-night, my child. But your father's having his supper all the same.' Do you want to sup with him? I haven't eaten your share. I thought you would probably claim it. Marie, I insist on your eating, cried the ploughman. I shan't eat any more. I am a glutton, a boor. You go without on our account, and it's not right. I am ashamed of myself. It takes away my appetite, I tell you. I won't let my son have any supper unless you take some. Let us alone, replied little Marie. You haven't the key to our appetites. Mine is closed to-day. But your Pierre's is wide open, like a little wolf's. Just see how he goes at it. Oh, he'll be a sturdy ploughman, too. In truth, Petit Pierre soon showed whose son he was, and although he was hardly awake and did not understand where he was or how he came there, he began to devour. Then, when his hunger was appeased, being intensely excited as children generally are when their regular habits are interrupted, he exhibited more quick wit more curiosity, and more shrewdness than usual. He made them tell him where he was, and when he learned that he was in the middle of a forest, he was a little afraid. "'Are there naughty beasts in this forest?' he asked his father. "'No, there are none at all,' was the reply. "'Don't be afraid.' "'Then you lied when you told me that the wolves would carry me off if I went through the big forest with you?' "'Do you hear this reasoner?' said Germain in some embarrassment. "'He is right.' replied little marie you told him that he has a good memory and he remembers it but you must understand my little pierre that your father never lies we passed the big forest while you were asleep and now we're in the little forest where there aren't any naughty beasts is the little forest very far from the big one pretty far and then the wolves never leave the big forest even if one should come here your father would kill him and would you kill him too little marie we would all kill him, for you would help us, my Pierre, wouldn't you? You're not afraid, I know. You would hit him hard. Yes, yes, said the child proudly, assuming a heroic attitude. We would kill him. There's no one like you for talking to children, said Germain to little Marie, and for making them hear reason. To be sure, it isn't long since you were a child yourself, and you remember what your mother used to say to you. I believe that the younger one is, the better one understands the young. I am very much afraid that a woman of thirty, who doesn't know what it is to be a mother, will find it hard to learn to prattle and reason with young brats. Why so, Germain? I don't know why you have such a bad idea of this woman. You'll get over it. To the devil with the woman, said Germain. I would like to go home and never come back here. What do I need of a woman I don't know? Little father, said the child. Why do you keep talking about your wife to-day, when she is dead? Alas, you haven't forgotten your poor dear mother, have you? No, for I saw them put her in a pretty box of white wood, 
and my grandma took me to her to kiss her and bid her good-bye. She was all white and cold, and every night my aunt tells me to pray to the good Lord to let her get warm with him in heaven. Do you think she's there now? I hope so, my child, but you must keep on praying. That shows your mother that you love her. I'm going to say my prayer, replied the child. I did not think of saying it this evening, but I can't say it all by myself. I always forget something. Little Marie must help me. Yes, Pierre, I will help you, said the girl. Come, kneel here by my side. The child knelt on the girl's skirt, clasped his little hands, and began to repeat his prayer with interest and fervently at first, for he knew the beginning very well, then more slowly and hesitatingly, and at last repeating word for word what Marie dictated to him, when he reached that point in his petition beyond which he had never been able to learn, as he always fell asleep just there every night. On this occasion the labour of paying attention and the monotony of his own tones produced their customary effect, so that he pronounced the last syllables only with great effort, and after they had been repeated three times, his head grew heavy and fell against Marie's breast, his hands relaxed, separated, and fell upon his knees. By the light of the campfire, Germain looked at this little angel nodding against the girl's heart, while she, holding him in her arms and warming his fair hair with her sweet breath, abandoned herself to devout reverie and prayed mentally for Catherine's soul. Germain was deeply moved, and tried to think of something to say to little Marie to express the esteem and gratitude she inspired in him, but he could find nothing that would give voice to his thoughts. He approached her to kiss his son, whom she was still holding against her breast, and it was hard for him to remove his lips from Petit Pierre's brow. "'You kiss him too hard,' said Marie, gently pushing the ploughman's head away. "'You will wake him. Let me put him to bed again, for he has gone back to his dreams of paradise.' The child let her put him down, but as he stretched himself out on the goatskin of the saddle, he asked if he were en grise. Then, opening his great blue eyes, and gazing at the branches for a moment, he seemed to be in a waking dream, or to be impressed by an idea that had come into his mind during the day, and took shape at the approach of sleep. "'Little father,' he said, "'if you are going to give me another mother, I want it to be little Marie.' And without awaiting a reply, he closed his eyes and went to sleep. CHAPTER X DESPITE THE COLD Little Marie seemed to pay no further heed to the child's strange words than to look upon them as a proof of friendship. She wrapped him up carefully, stirred the fire, and as the mist lying upon the neighboring pool gave no sign of lifting, she advised Germain to lie down near the fire and have a nap. I see that you are almost asleep now, she said, for you don't say a word, and you are staring at the fire just as your little one did just now. Come, go to sleep, and I will watch over you and the child. You're the one to go to sleep, replied the ploughman, and I will watch both of you, for I never was less inclined to sleep. I have fifty ideas in my head. Fifty, that's a good many, said the maiden, with some suggestion of mockery in her tone. There are so many people who would like to have one. Well, if I'm not capable of having fifty, at all events I have one that hasn't left me for an hour. And I'll tell you what it is, as well as the ones you had before it. Very good. Tell me, if you can guess, Marie. Tell me yourself. I shall like that. An hour ago, she retorted, you had the idea of eating, and now you have the idea of sleeping. 
Marie, I am only an ox-driver at best, but really you seem to take me for an ox. You're a bad girl, and I see that you don't want to talk with me. Go to sleep. That will be better than criticizing a man who isn't in good spirits. If you want to talk, let us talk, said the girl, half reclining beside the child and resting her head against the saddle. You are determined to worry, Germain, and in that you don't show much courage for a man. What should I not say if I didn't fight as hard as I can against my own grief? What, indeed, and that is just what I have in my head, my poor child. You're going to live far away from your people in a wretched place, all moors and bogs, where you will catch the fever in autumn, where there's no profit in raising sheep for wool, which always vexes a shepherdess who is interested in her business. And then you will be among strangers who may not be kind to you, who won't understand what you are worth. Upon my word, it pains me more than I can tell you, and I have a mind to take you back to your mother instead of going to Fourche. You speak very kindly, but without sense, my poor Germain. One shouldn't be cowardly for his friends, and instead of pointing out the dark side of my lot, you ought to show me the bright side, as you did when we dined at La Rebecque's. What would you have? That's the way things looked to me then, and they look different now. You would do better to find a husband. That can't be, Germain, as I told you, and as it can't be, I don't think about it. But suppose you could find one, after all. Perhaps if you would tell me what sort of man you'd like him to be, I could succeed in thinking up someone. To think up someone is not to find him. I don't think about it at all, for it's of no use. You have never thought of finding a rich husband? No, of course not. I'm as poor as Job. But if he should be well off, you wouldn't be sorry to be well lodged, well fed, well dressed, and to belong to a family of good people who would allow you to help your mother along? Oh, as to that, yes. To help my mother is my only wish. And if you should meet such a man, even if he wasn't in his first youth, you wouldn't object very much? Oh, excuse me, Germain. That's just the thing I am particular about. I shouldn't like an old man. An old man, of course not. But a man of my age, for instance? Your age is old for me, Germain. I should prefer Bastien, so far as age goes, though Bastien isn't such a good-looking man as you. You would prefer Bastien, the swineherd? said Germain bitterly. A fellow with eyes like the beasts he tends? I would overlook his eyes for the sake of his eighteen years. Germain had a horrible feeling of jealousy. Well, well, he said. I see that your mind is set on Bastien. It's a queer idea, all the same. Yes, it would be a queer idea, replied little Marie, laughing heartily. And he would be a queer husband. You could make him believe whatever you chose. For instance, I picked up a tomato in Monsieur Le Cure's garden the other day. I told him it was a fine red apple, and he bit into it like a glutton. If you had seen the wry face he made, mon Dieu, how ugly he was! You don't love him, then, as you laugh at him. That wouldn't be any reason. But I don't love him. He's cruel to his little sister, and he isn't clean. Very good. And you don't feel inclined toward anybody else? What difference does it make to you, Germain? No difference. It's just for something to talk about. I see, my girl, that you have a sweetheart in your head already. No, Germain, you're mistaken. I haven't one yet. It may come later. But as I shall not marry till I have saved up a little money, it will be my lot to marry late, and to marry an old man. Well, then, take an old man now. No, indeed. 
When I am no longer young myself, it will be all the same to me. Now it would be different. "'I see, Marie, that you don't like me. That's very clear,' said Germain angrily, and without weighing his words. Little Marie did not reply. Germain leaned over her. She was asleep. She had fallen back, conquered, struck down, as it were, by drowsiness, like children who fall asleep while they are prattling. Germain was well pleased that she had not heard his last words. He realized that they were unwise, and he turned his back upon her, trying to change the current of his thoughts. But it was of no avail. He could not sleep, nor could he think of anything else than what he had just said. He walked around the fire twenty times, walked away and returned. At last, feeling as excited as if he had swallowed a mouthful of gunpowder, he leaned against the tree that sheltered the two children and watched them sleeping. I don't know why I never noticed that little Marie is the prettiest girl in the province, he thought. She hasn't a great deal of color, but her little face is as fresh as a wild rose. What a pretty mouth and what a cunning little nose. She isn't tall for her age, but she's built like a little quail and light as a lark. I don't know why they think so much at home of a tall, stout, red-faced woman. My wife was rather thin and pale, and she suited me above all others. This girl is delicate, but she's perfectly well and as pretty to look at as a white kid. And what a sweet, honest way she has! How well you can read her kind heart in her eyes, even when they are closed in sleep. As for wit, she has more than my dear Catherine had, I must admit, and one would never be bored with her. She's light-hearted, she's virtuous, she's a hard worker, she's affectionate, and she's amusing. I don't see what more one could ask. But what business have I to think of all that? resumed Germain, trying to look in another direction. My father-in-law wouldn't listen to it, and the whole family would treat me as a madman. Besides, she herself wouldn't have me, poor child. She thinks I am too old. She told me so. She isn't interested. It doesn't worry her much to think of being in want and misery, of wearing poor clothes and suffering with hunger two or three months in the year, provided that she satisfies her heart some day and can give herself to a husband who suits her. And she's right, too. I would do the same in her place. And at this moment, if I could follow my own will, instead of embarking on a marriage that I don't like the idea of, I would choose a girl to my taste. The more Germain strove to argue with himself and calm himself, the less he succeeded. He walked twenty steps away, to lose himself in the mist, and then he suddenly found himself on his knees beside the two sleeping children. Once he even tried to kiss Petit Pierre, who had one arm around Marie's neck, and he went so far astray that Marie, feeling a breath as hot as fire upon her lips, awoke and looked at him in terror, understanding nothing of what was taking place within him. "'I didn't see you, my poor children,' said Germain, quickly drawing back. "'I came very near falling on you and hurting you.' Little Marie was innocent enough to believe him and went to sleep again. Germain went to the other side of the fire and vowed that he would not stir until she was awake. He kept his word, but it was a hard task. He thought that he should go mad. At last, about midnight, the fog disappeared, and Germain could see the stars shining through the trees. The moon also shook itself clear of the vapours that shrouded it, and began to sow diamonds on the damp moss. The trunks of the oak-trees remained in majestic obscurity, but a little farther away the white stems of the birches seemed like a row of phantoms in their shrouds. The fire was reflected in the pool, and the frogs, beginning to become accustomed to it, hazarded a few shrill, timid notes. The knotty branches of the old trees 
bristling with pale lichens, crossed and recrossed, like great fleshless arms over our travellers' heads. It was a lovely spot, but so lonely and melancholy that Germain, weary of suffering there, began to sing and to throw stones into the water to charm away the ghastly ennui of solitude. He wanted also to wake little Marie, and when he saw her rise and look about to see what the weather was like, he suggested that they should resume their journey. "'In two hours,' he said, "'the approach of dawn will make the air so cold that we couldn't stay here, notwithstanding our fire. Now we can see where we are going, and we shall be sure to find a house where they will let us in, or at least a barn where we can pass the rest of the night under cover.' Marie had no wish in the matter, and although she was still very sleepy, she prepared to go with Germain. He took his son in his arms without waking him, and insisted that Marie should come and take a part of his cloak, as she would not take her own from around Petit Pierre. When he felt the girl so near to him, Germain, who had succeeded in diverting his thoughts, and had brightened up a little for a moment, began to lose his head again. Two or three times he walked abruptly away from her, and left her to walk by herself. Then, seeing that she had difficulty in keeping up with him, he waited for her, drew her hastily to his side, and held her so tight that she was amazed, and angry, too, although she dared not say so. As they had no idea in what direction they had started out, they did not know in what direction they were going, so that they passed through the whole forest once more, found themselves again on the edge of the deserted moor, retraced their steps, and, after turning about and walking a long while, they spied a light through the trees. "'Good! There's a house,' said Germain, and people already awake, as the fires lighted. Can it be very late? But it was not a house. It was their campfire which they had covered when they left it, and which had rekindled in the breeze. They had walked about for two hours, only to find themselves back at their starting point. CHAPTER Eleven, IN THE OPEN AIR "'This time I give it up,' said Germain, stamping on the ground. "'A spell has been cast on us, that's sure.' and we shall not get away from here till daylight. This place must be bewitched. Well, well, let's not lose our tempers, said Marie, but let us make the best of it. We'll make a bigger fire. The child is so well wrapped up that he runs no risk, and it won't kill us to pass a night out of doors. Where did you hide the saddle, Germain? In the middle of the holly bushes, you great stupid. It's such a convenient place to go and get it. Here, take the child, while I pull his bed out of the brambles. I don't want you to prick your fingers. "'It's all done. Here's the bed, and a few pricks aren't sword-cuts,' retorted the brave girl. She proceeded to put little Pierre to bed once more. The boy was so sound asleep by that time that he knew nothing about their last journey. Germain piled so much wood on the fire that it lighted up the forest all around. But little Marie was at the end of her strength, and although she did not complain, her legs refused to hold her. She was deathly pale, and her teeth chattered with cold and weakness. Germain took her in his arms to warm her, and anxiety, compassion, an irresistible outburst of tenderness taking possession of his heart, imposed silence on his passions. His tongue was loosened, as if by a miracle, and as all feeling of shame disappeared, he said to her, "'Marie, I like you, and I am very unfortunate in not making you like me. If you would take me for your husband, neither father-in-law, nor relations, nor neighbors, nor advice—' could prevent me from giving myself to you. I know you would make my children happy, and teach them to respect their mother's memory, and as my conscience would be at rest, 
I could satisfy my heart. I have always been fond of you, and now I am so in love with you that if you should ask me to spend my life fulfilling your thousand wishes, I would swear on the spot to do it. Pray, pray see how I love you and forget my age. Just think what a false idea it is that people have that a man of thirty is old. Besides, I am only twenty-eight. A girl is afraid of being criticized for taking a man ten or twelve years older than she is, because it isn't the custom of the province. But I have heard that in other places they don't think about that. On the other hand, they prefer to give a young girl for her support, a sober-minded man, and one whose courage has been put to the test, rather than a young fellow who may go wrong, and turn out to be a bad lot, instead of the nice boy he is supposed to be. And then, too, years don't always make age. That depends on a man's health and strength. When a man is worn out by overwork and poverty, or by evil living, he is old before he's twenty-five, while I— But you're not listening to me, Marie. Yes, I am, Germain. I hear what you say, replied little Marie. But I am thinking of what my mother has always told me, that a woman of sixty is much to be pitied when her husband is seventy or seventy-five, and can't work any longer to support her. He grows infirm, and she must take care of him at an age when she herself is beginning to have great need of care and rest. That is how people come to end their lives in the gutter. Parents are right to say that, I agree, Marie, said Germain. But after all, they would sacrifice the whole of youth, which is the best part of life, to provide against what may happen at an age when one has ceased to be good for anything, and when one is indifferent about ending his life in one way or another. But I am in no danger of dying of hunger in my old age. I am in a fair way to save up something, because, living as I do with my wife's people, I work hard and spend nothing. Besides, I will love you so well, you know, that that will prevent me from growing old. They say that when a man's happy he retains his youth, and I feel that I am younger than Bastien just from loving you. For he doesn't love you, he's too stupid, too much of a child to understand how pretty and good you are, and made to be courted. Come, Marie, don't hate me. I am not a bad man. I made my Catherine happy. She said before God on her deathbed that she had never been anything but contented with me, and she advised me to marry again. It seems that her heart spoke to her child to-night, just as he went to sleep. Didn't you hear what he said, and how his little mouth trembled, while his eyes were looking at something in the air that we couldn't see? He saw his mother, you may be sure, and she made him say that he wanted you to take her place. Germain, Marie replied, greatly surprised, and very grave, you talk straightforwardly, and all you say is true. I am sure that I should do well to love you, if it wouldn't displease your relations too much. But what would you have me do? My heart says nothing to me for you. I like you very much, but although your age doesn't make you ugly, it frightens me. It seems to me as if you were something like an uncle or godfather to me, that I owe you respect, and that there would be times when you would treat me as a little girl rather than as your wife and your equal. And then my girlfriends would laugh at me, perhaps, and although it would be foolish to pay any attention to that, I think I should be ashamed and a little bit sad on my wedding day. Those are childish reasons. You talk exactly like a child, Marie. Well, yes, I am a child, she said and that is just why I am afraid of a man who knows too much. You see, I'm too young for you, for you are finding fault with me already for talking foolishly. I can't have more sense than belongs to my years. Alas! Mon Dieu! 
How I deserve to be pitied for being so awkward, and for my ill-success in saying what I think. Marie, you don't love me, that's the fact. You think I am too simple and too dull. If you loved me a little, you wouldn't see my defects so plainly. But you don't love me, you see. Well, it isn't my fault, she replied, a little wounded by his dropping the familiar form of address he had hitherto used. I do the best I can while I listen to you, but the harder I try, the less able I am to make myself believe that we ought to be husband and wife. Germain did not reply. He hid his face in his hand, and it was impossible for little Marie to tell whether he was crying or sulking or asleep. She was a little disturbed to see him so depressed, and to be unable to divine what was going on in his mind. But she dared say no more to him, and as she was too much astonished by what had taken place to have any desire to go to sleep again, she waited impatiently for daybreak, continuing to keep up the fire and watching the child, whom Germain seemed to have forgotten. Germain, meanwhile, was not asleep. He was not reflecting on his lot, nor was he devising any bold stroke or any plan of seduction. He was suffering keenly. He had a mountain of ennui upon his heart. He wished he were dead. Everything seemed to be turning out badly for him, and if he could have wept, he would not have done it by halves. But there was a little anger with himself mingled with his suffering, and he was suffocating, unable and unwilling to complain. When day broke and the noise in the fields announced the fact to Germain, he took his hands from his face and rose. He saw that little Marie had not slept either, but he could think of nothing to say to her to show his solicitude. He was utterly discouraged. He concealed Grise's saddle in the bushes once more, took his bag over his shoulder, and said, taking his son's hand, "'Now, Marie, we'll try and finish our journey. Do you want me to take you to Ormeaux?' "'We will go out of the woods together,' she replied, "'and when we know where we are we will go our separate ways.' Germain said nothing. He was wounded because the girl did not ask him to escort her to Ormeaux, and he did not realize that he had made the offer in a tone that seemed to challenge a refusal. A woodcutter, whom they met within two hundred paces, pointed out the path they must take, and told them that after crossing the great meadow they had only to go, in the one case straight ahead, in the other to the left, to reach their respective destinations, which, by the way, were so near together that the houses at Fourche could be distinctly seen from the farm of Ormeaux, and vice versa. When they had thanked the woodcutter and passed on, he called them back to ask if they had not lost a horse. "'I found a fine grey mare in my yard,' he said, "'where she may have gone to escape the wolf. My dogs barked all night long, and at daybreak I saw the beast under my shed. She's still there. Go and look at her, and if you know her, take her.' Germain, having described Grise, and being convinced that it was really she, started back to get his saddle. Little Marie thereupon offered to take the child to Ormeaux, where he could come and get him after he had paid his respects at Fourche. "'He isn't very clean after the night we have passed,' she said. "'I will brush his clothes, wash his pretty little face, and comb his hair, and when he's all spick and span you can present him to your new family.' "'How do you know that I am going to Fourche?' rejoined Germain testily. "'Perhaps I shan't go there.' "'Oh, yes, Germain, you ought to go, and you will,' said the girl. "'You are in a great hurry to have me marry to somebody else, so that you can be sure I won't make myself a nuisance to you. Come, come, Germain, don't think any more about that. That's an idea that came to you in the night, because our unpleasant adventure disturbed your wits a little. 
but now you must be reasonable again. I promise to forget what you said to me, and never to mention it to any one. Oh, mention it if you choose. I am not in the habit of taking back what I say. What I said to you was true and honest, and I shan't blush for it before any one. Very good. But if your wife knew that you had thought of another woman just at the moment you called on her, it might turn her against you. So be careful what you say now. Don't look at me like that, with such a strange expression, before other people. Think of Pam Maurice, who relies on your obedience, and who would be very angry with me if I turned you from doing as he wants you to. Good-bye, Germain. I'll take Petit Pierre with me, so as to force you to go to Fourche. I keep him as a pledge. Do you want to go with her? said the ploughman to his son, seeing that he was clinging to little Marie's hands and following her resolutely. Yes, father, replied the child, who had been listening and understood in his own way what they had been saying unsuspectingly before him. I am going with my darling Marie. You can come and get me when you are done getting married, but I want Marie to be my little mother just the same. You see that he wants it to be so, Germain said to the young girl. Listen, Petit Pierre, he added, I want her to be your mother and stay with you always. She's the one that isn't willing. Try to make her do what I want her to. Don't you be afraid, Papa. I'll make her say yes. Little Marie always does what I want her to. He walked away with the girl. Germain was left alone, more depressed and irresolute than ever. End of chapters 9, 10, and 11 of The Devil's Pool